Welcome to the Elevate Together podcast, voices of change in the business of law. Hello, this is Nicole Giantonio, the head of global marketing at Elevate. The podcast episode you're about to hear is part of our next Normal Leadership Series, featuring Elevate's chairman and CEO, Liam Brown, talking with Jason Bameg, the CEO at Ironclad, a digital contracting platform for legal teams. During this episode, Liam and Jason discuss the transition from a startup culture to building and leading a thriving law company. Jason, thank you for joining me on this podcast today. Hopefully, we will get a chance to talk about leadership in law in the time that we have together. And typically, I ask about the arc of your career, but I have to add, because I can actually see you while I'm on this podcast, I'd like to ask you to somehow weave in how you have such a cool record collection right behind you. Okay, I will try to do that as succinctly as possible. Uh, It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Liam. Big fan of you and Elevate, so it's an honor to be here. My journey, I'm the CEO and one of the co-founders at Ironclad. Ironclad is a digital contract platform, meaning that we help companies of all shapes and sizes in all industries make and manage their business contracts and really help the legal professionals at those firms focus on the kind of highest and best use of their time through automation, AI, workflows, repositories, and connecting that all into a single place. How I got to be here is... Well, I started my career... If we really want to back up and take the conversation a little bit broader, I started my career on Wall Street. And really, I do have to trace the beginnings of Ironclad back to my career on Wall Street because I was an institutional salesperson on the mortgage-backed securities trading floor. And it was at the time, 2006, 2007, when quants were really starting to sit next to experienced bond traders. And so I was fascinated by the impact that code specifically was having on the ability to analyze bond trades and derivatives trades in that you could run a a program that would tell you a likelihood of default on a portfolio of loans that someone who had sat on the trading floor and traded those securities for 30 years really wasn't capable of wrapping their mind around. And specifically, it was the intersection of that qualitative experience and the quantitative code that produced a new form of decision-making. And so that, I mean, in hindsight, was the intersection of my legal career, my second career, coming into full circle with Ironclad, which is really designed to allow legal professionals to make better decisions through software and code. There's an interim bit there where I take a motorcycle trip and I go to law school and I become a corporate associate in Silicon Valley. But uh, those are probably more predictable parts. And then to try to tie in music, my co-founder is a brilliant musician. We have a culture of music at Ironclad. We are at our retreats. We have performances. I have zero musical talent. So I focus my energies on appreciating music. And I find that the more I can do that in a way that's analog and hi-fi, the more better my experience is. So that's the record collection behind me. Well, I'm not sure that we'll be able to tie that in as a theme through the conversation we have. So Jason, I always do some research on people and our businesses know each other very well. So I had the advantage of that. As I was researching you, you appear to be one of these executives that carries competing thoughts or dueling thoughts in your mind at the same time. I found a whole bunch of writing thoughts you had about business. And I found almost a sort of similar sized trove of information about how you think about the people and leadership. 
that was interesting to me to actually see that you'd written so much or spoke so much about that. I'm going to start on the business side. We're in this moment of digital transformation. You talk about 2000, I think you said 2007, as a clouds parting moment. In some ways, you appear to be in the right place at the right time. And one of the things I read from you was business went digital, contracts didn't. Why is that? And why is that different now? That really gets to the heart of why I love this term that we're seeing adopted in the industry now, which is digital contracting. And I think it's really because contracts are so complex. There's so many different use cases for contracts. And we see everything from Instagram influencers being signed up on a contract problem to like a complex financial products to charities. They really are at the heart of any business transaction that you could imagine. And as broad and as many varieties of businesses there are, there are that many varieties of contracts. To speak about them with one word is to introduce a lot of complexity and a lot of variance in that concept. And so by their very nature, I think they will be later to adopt to the digital world. And what we've seen so far is that the adaptation of contracts to the digital world has largely mirrored the analog world. And if you think about what a PDF is, it's like a digital representation of a piece of paper. If you think about what an electronic signature is, is it's a like one-for-one digital representation of taking a pen and signing that paper. I've got my record player behind me. That's not the way I listen to music. I don't go over to a digital <laughs> exact copy of a record player and take some digital file and put it in it. I pull up Spotify on my iPhone. That's the optimal way of experiencing music in the digital world. And so we're trying to think through actually what that digital world of contracts is and the complexity that comes with that. And how it's woven into other parts of the business or other processes in the business. I don't think I could quite overstate how significant that statement you made about, look, I don't take a picture of my vinyl and then somehow consume that picture. I actually engage with music in a different way that is relevant for me where I am, whether or not I'm in the car whether or not I'm actually out jogging or in some cases in a concert hall. And all of those are different experiences and require a different way of interacting. That's one of the things that I see about what you're doing at Ironclad is to really weave in connecting with a contract with where you are, when you are, or who you are doing what you're doing in a business process. And really discovering with our customers what's possible when things are digitally native. Just before this call, I was listening to a playlist on Spotify. You can't make a playlist on the fly with analog records. It's just not a thing that's possible. You can put on and listen to an album, and I certainly enjoy doing that. But that's a new capability that's possible when you have things in a digitally native format. And what's just constantly amazing to me is the new things that our customers are basically inventing with when they have access to Ironclad. I mean, we've got customers that have discovered, hey, all of our key financial information actually exists in this contract. And a finance team will discover that and hack our API to auto-ingest all of their payment terms and feed them into their accounting system. And now they close their books in 2 seconds as opposed to 2 weeks. I really feel the vibrancy of the community that is coming together to create this new way of doing things. The customers that are attracted to this are attracted for reasons X, Y, or Z, but also the people that you have to bring along to get interested in solving legal, technical problems or engineering problems or UX problems in the legal space. All the people that you need to bring together to kind of do the magic that actually 
serves the customer community. I still feel like we're in the hacker phase of legal technology and community. An analogy someone used for me back when we were starting Ironclad was we're in the homebrew computer club days of legal technology. It might not be perfect, but there's an energy and a kind of enthusiasm among the early adopters to create something that I think is really magical. And one of the blessings of that is as a founder, I think you do get a lot of true believers that bought in, they're convinced there's no hype cycle around it. So you find the few people who think it's really cool and are excited about it and get the vision. I'm really interested because I do feel like we're at an inflection point. And one of the things I've talked to the team about is we really need to be careful on who we're hiring because there is a bit of a hype cycle now. And we don't really want the people who are just chasing whatever the cool area of technology is. And in some ways, the quality and caliber of recruit that is incoming these days is higher than ever. But it's also harder to distinguish who the true believers and the community members. What has caused this to come to the surface of your consciousness enough that it's caused you to articulate that? It's probably more of a feeling. I'm a very intuitive person. I do think in some ways it's the success that our industry is experiencing for certainly not the first time, but a newly reinvigorated business results. It's pretty hard to ignore business results. And I think investors and Silicon Valley starts to see this is a great business. And there's a lot of ways that this business can continue to develop. Some of that's within what I would consider the core of the legal industry and legal technology. And some of it's a little bit adjacent. You got DocuSign. I would call them a legal tech company. 40 plus billion dollar market cap. That starts to get people pretty excited about what's possible here. And I don't think anyone, including DocuSign, would say that they've solved the contracting problem. So it's like a bit of a gold rush to this massive market opportunity in some ways. Yeah, I think that's true. Talk a bit about the approach you've taken to moving the business from startup to emerging stage. And I mean, whether or not that's the approach you've taken to funding, the, the, the approach you've taken to kind of building out a management team, would you share, Jason, how you went from, this is an interesting idea with some early stage adoption to, wow, I've got a real business here that I'm building. That kind of breaks down into the first two stages. Like One is searching for product market fit. And to cover that one really quickly, effectively, what we were trying to do is we had a viewpoint that CLM has traditionally been a database-driven industry. And if you look at the top players 10 years ago, it's databases. And every corporate function needs databases. So CLM, database for contracts. Problem is, you got to get stuff in the database. So only big companies can afford the people that put things in a database. And we had this viewpoint of how could we allow everyone to have the benefits of contract management? Every company, whether you're a surf shop, or like selling coffees, like you should know what's in your business contracts and you should be have those at your fingertips. But you probably don't have time to hire a contracts manager if you're a surf shop. So how can we let every company in the world experience the benefits of what contract management should be? And we realized, I think taking a broad look at the problem, the problem is actually broader than just how do you find your contracts? It's how do you make contracts? Nobody likes making contracts. Everyone views them as a blocker. Is it possible to solve both of those problems with one product? And we looked at that and we said, well, the database piece, that's sort of proven that it can be solved. The unproven part is, can you link up a way to make contracts with the database and have that be something people enjoy using and even lawyers would actually want to switch their workflow to? We spent about 2 years figuring out whether that was possible with a really wonderful group of customers and emerged with a pretty exciting business that was growing organically after that. 
And so we felt like even though we didn't have the full product there, we felt like we had a very strong viewpoint that we could achieve product market fit and we knew exactly what that looked like. So at that point, we shifted into, okay, let's build a business here and let's think about the path to becoming a large independent company over the next decade. And my co-founder and I, we never thought we would be startup founders. We're not really interested in being startup founders beyond the ironclad problem. We just want to work on the ironclad problem. So we set out to build a very long-term business. And one of our principles for doing that was we always wanted to act and behave like a much bigger, much more mature company than we were. Even the name Ironclad, I think, evokes a, a large company name. And we've always tried to act with that level of maturity and long-term decision-making. I would say that underlying ethos has been part of the company from the moment we realized it's possible to build a big business on here. And we felt like we'd identified that product market fit. And then when you move past that phase to, okay, now we've got a tiger by its tail, so to speak. How did you approach... And I think this is your first business. How did you learn? How did you figure out what were the steps that you needed to take to ride this opportunity or release the potential of this opportunity? Well, I think in some ways, the it being my first business and my co-founder's first business was an advantage because it was very clear. We understand the product. My co-founder's incredible software engineer and product builder. And I just love the problem space of business contracts and legal teams and, and that kind of problem area. So we love the problem and we know we want to work on it for a while. Let's take advantage of where we are in the world, which is the center of Silicon Valley, and let's recruit and identify some software talent who has done this before. We can learn from... We started building our executive team when we were 17 people. I'll put it up against any company of our stage. And I think our investors will back up the quality. We're still building it. And it's full of not necessarily people who have come from the legal industry, although there are some. Really, people who have built great and lasting software companies. We take that attitude of learning and wanting to level up our game and our knowledge level since we haven't done this before. Bringing people together from the software world, adding in a mix of people with the legal world. How do you get everyone to be as engaged, excited, but perhaps just as importantly, effective in collaboration around this in that first two years, you really asked a lot of questions. The problem caused you to ask a lot of questions. And it seems to me from the way you tell the story that you actually cycled through a lot of questions until you ended up with some really high quality questions. And that informed this viewpoint that you have going forward. I mean, I would almost go so far as to say, if you're a lawyer or a legal professional that's listening to this, thinking about, wow, I'd like to be a founder or a CEO of a legal tech business, I would actually say, please listen to what Jason said there about spending real quality time. There is no way to short circuit the time with customers, really, really honing in on what are the highest quality questions that really inform a unique viewpoint, because that will give you almost an unfair advantage, a head start. Where you start really makes a big difference. And I would argue that where Ironclad has started, the questions that you've asked and the viewpoint that you've developed is something that businesses that are going through a technology refresh right now in the CLM space, I'm certain there are some, a lot of aha conversations going on. Aha, I never thought about thinking of contracts in that way. I never thought about contract technology in that way. So you bring all these executives together. And I know what it's like to work with Sand Hill Road, Silicon Valley, venture community, 
they're very connected. So they bring lots of people. How do you get all these people who've been working in other areas to get passionate and aligned around a problem like this? That's a great question. And I think it, it really comes down to how you hire and what you look for in the hiring, especially at the executive level. The company is changing so fast. One of the things I've really learned to look for is curiosity and growth mindset. We are solving and encountering new types of problems every day. It's amazing the attitude difference and the growth trajectory when maybe the only variable of difference between two people is the level of curiosity. And people that get excited when they encounter a new type of problem and take a learning when they solve it for the first time that they can bring to the second time they solve something similar have such a higher success rate. And it's really amazing to me, Like given some basic bar of intelligence and domain knowledge, I will look every time for curiosity and kind of like positive attitude as the differentiator and success among different profiles of candidate. It's interesting you talk about this curiosity. I think one of the things that's pretty clear to me when I work with people, when our ideas meet the real world of serving customers, is that there's two sets of responses. There's one group of people who see customers as problems. Customers are demanding. Customers are never satisfied. Customers are problems. Then the other pool, people sees customers as this fantastic sort of never-ending source of interesting problems to solve. And I think that goes to your curiosity mindset. And because even with my gray hair, I continue to struggle with solving. How do I make sure that when we hire, we have people who see customers as this source of interesting problems that are curious. How do you go about determining whether or not someone is curious? That is a really good question. One way you can do it is by references. If there's one thing I've learned, it's if I've got an hour of time to dedicate to learning about someone, talking to somebody that has worked with them and is in a psychological place where they can be open about their experiences is tremendously valuable. I always like to start a little bit earlier than is traditional in going over someone's background. I like to dig back. What was your first job? What was your first experience with work? And see if there's been learnings or even the attitude at which they approach menial tasks. A couple anecdotes that stick out from people at Ironclad. One of our early employees that I remember having this discussion with, his first job was shoveling manure. And his attitude about it, he learned all these things and it was on this farm and he had all these observations. Someone else worked in their parents' restaurant growing up, figured out a new way to improve some process in the kitchen or a new system of answering the phone. I look for just these little improvements that people have made. The world around us is so amenable to improvements. They don't need to be dramatic. Marginal improvements along the way or just finding that slightly better way of doing something seems to be a pretty good predictor. As you look out over the next couple of years, what are the kinds of obstacles that you think that the business or perhaps you personally would need to, or the executive team are going to need to overcome? I was talking to one of my mentors and advisors the other day, and I was asking him a similar question of like, how should I think about the next few years? And his conjecture was, there will be fewer fires, but they'll burn hotter as you continue to get bigger and bigger. It does make sense. If I rewind earlier in the company, I remember very distinctly the... I think it was the time we were raising our Series A and we were 15 people or something. And we didn't have anyone that was like sending out invoices. I did my day. And then I remember making a Series A pitch deck and then sending out some more emails. And then it was 2am. And I had to go send out all of our invoices and send it from our invoices address. So they didn't realize the CEO was invoicing them. 
where the company's at today, extremely well capitalized. We have teams doing every function you could imagine. There's no missing gaps. We have experienced executives at the helm of everything. I can just see that continuing to play out and it being fewer fires, but then burning hotter. As long as we remain focused on the customer and continue to be the most curious, the most passionate, the most diligent people interested in that problem, then we cannot fail to be successful. That in an ordinary year, it seems like an easy to accept answer. In this year, being a leader, how have you kept everyone focused on the mission? And has this year been much of an impact on the fires that you have had to put out? It's certainly been a lot of change, particularly for Ironclad. We were a very in-person culture prior to the pandemic. I think it was actually in some ways made easier to transition to remote when everyone on just one day went from everyone being in person to everyone being remote and there was no half stage there. It's certainly been full of change. I'm very grateful. It's been a great year for us. And I'm really proud of the team for how they've adapted to rapidly changing circumstances. It hasn't been without challenge, but it's been a year in which we've really thrived as a company. The team gets put to the test in a moment like this. And we have adapted a ton. One thing that's kind of interesting for a company that has a lot of legal DNA is we've really moved towards more of a writing culture. Even on the executive team, we used to spend an hour and a half every Monday in a conference room together. And there wasn't a lot of prep for it. It was like, we just knew we would solve the problems ahead of us if we got in that room. And remote, you just have a lot less context. We each write a briefing by Friday afternoon and we send those around. And it's a cool innovation that I think we'll take with us into the next stage. And I think it's actually a big competitive advantage to have that clarity and way of communicating available to us. We've talked about techniques and tools and how you've developed into a business leader. Are there any books or writings that you've read that have really informed your executive development? I'll give you two that my team would probably say because I talk about them all the time. One is The Score Takes Care of Itself by Bill Walsh. Bill Walsh took over the 49ers when they were terrible. And it's about how he turned around the 49ers systems and processes he put in place there. I think the high-level thing, which I take a lot of ownership of is I do think the leader has to set forth and hold accountable for a standard of excellence. And so he put forth a standard of excellence. What's really interesting is where he started applying that standard of excellence. So it wasn't, we're going to win 5 games this year, 8 games this year, and then 11 games. He literally went in and was like, we're going to answer the phones this way. And we're going to pick up every single piece of trash after practice. And it is a non-intuitive way to start building a culture of, of greatness with just really little things. The thing I love about that is that's things you can do in a day. You can answer the phones better after one day. You can have a clean locker room after one practice. And you can build off of the momentum towards those things to achieve a culture of winning and a culture of greatness that can become pretty lasting. So I love that book. And it's always inspired when I go back to that one. The more off-the-wall one is called Honey Bee Democracy. And it's basically about how bees make decisions. Bees are really good at identifying the like optimal location for their next nest. And one of the things this book kind of details is how they do that. And it's through group decision-making. The core mechanic that they use is there are lots of people doing different things. And they very quickly come back and report what they found and their take on the situation. The bees will go out and they'll investigate basically every possible place for a nest and they'll come back and they'll dance. And the length of the dance and like the frequency of the vibration basically communicate how good they feel that 
Nest is a fit. There is some like mysteriously objective criteria that they're using that's quite fascinating. But I love the concept of if you had an organized hierarchical way of finding a Nest, you would never get to that. But you've just got bees out there talking to customers basically and bringing back what they've found from that customer. Once the swarm decides to move, everyone goes. It's not like some bees go to this one and some bees go to this one. The vast majority of bees have never gone to the location for the next nest, but there's kind of this critical moment where everyone goes. So I love that everyone's reporting information back, but then we all go to the same place type of thinking. And I kind of aspire to build a company that adheres to that. That is fantastic. My last question, I'd like you to finish a sentence for me, please. And the sentence that I like to ask is, leadership in tough times requires dot, dot, dot. The first thing that came to mind was care for people. So I think leadership in tough times requires care for people. How that manifests a couple different ways. I think of it as if you've done things correctly, there's not a lot of reacting to do in terms of decisions. You just are trusting the team that you have put in place when that crisis hits to execute. I think of my job as caring for the team. And so I'm checking in with every exec. What do you need from me? Are you getting sleep? Are you able to make decisions? Do you have the right resources? If not, I'll track those down. Care and understanding for people. Jason, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for spending this time with me talking about leadership and law. Thanks for having me. This is a great series and hope to continue the discussion in the future. Tune in to the next episode of the Elevate Together podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and elevateservices.com.